2: This is Design Matters with Debbie Millman from designobserver.com This episode is brought to you with support from Shutterstock and lynda.com On this program, Debbie Millman talks with designer and writer Michael Rock
3: Design isn't just about translating content, it's about creating a whole mood or a whole feeling or a whole atmosphere around something Here's Debbie Millman
0: Michael Rock is a partner at 2x4, a global design consultancy in New York City. He founded the firm in 1994, along with Susan Sellers and Georgiana Stout. Since then, the firm has worked with Chanel, Nike, Prada, and Kanye West, among many, many others. Michael has also taught at Yale, Columbia, and RISD, and has won some major awards, including the Rome Prize and the National Design Award. Now, Michael has brought together all of this knowledge and experience in a book that the Wall Street Journal has flagged as a must-buy. It's called Multiple Signatures, and it's a witty, deeply informed look at the history and development of 21st century design. Michael Rock, welcome to Design Matters. Thank you. So, Michael, is it true that you think that the Vatican may have originated the concept of the cross-platform branding campaign?
3: (laughs) I'm sure it was before the Vatican, but I think they perfected it. It, That sounds funny, but I think actually there's a serious aspect of it. And I think that um, the earlier version of that is probably the Roman Empire is the version of that. And I think that the Roman Empire started this idea that you could have design elements which could be propagated anywhere – and that you could reproduce, basically, the ideology of Rome all through the provinces. And so the the Roman Empire literally made branding manuals for cities, for instance, how they should be organized, how they should be designed, how the insignias should look on them, and perpetuated that throughout the empire. And so that idea of creating a kind of ideology of design, which had specific elements that could be reproduced anywhere, was an idea that the church took up as it. You know, became the dominant ideology in Rome. And as the church spread through the empire and started to reproduce its own elements, it just adopted the same things that Rome was already doing. So so Vatican was made the second comer. The the Caesars were the first. <laughs>
0: when when I interviewed Massimo Vignelli, I asked him if there was a job that he hadn't had yet that he'd really loved to have in his career. And he said the redesign of the Catholic Church. Um, but said that... Um, Everything would have to go, except the symbol. The symbol could stay. <laughs> yeah, <right.
3: laughs> Massimo never wanted to uh, shirk away from you know big projects. So.
0: <laughs> Michael, in your new book, multiple signatures, you begin by declaring that you are a designer and a writer, and that over the course of many years, your work has oscillated between these two roles. Do you think that they're independent? Could one exist without the other?
3: No, they can't exist without the other because I think of design as a kind of elaborate form of writing really uh, or elaborated form of writing. But to put that in a personal context, I studied first uh, English literature and specifically modern poetry and then went to graphic design. And because I came from that background, I always felt somewhat outside of design, you know, a little bit like an outsider. Like I never felt I was really a designer. And Do you now? more so, but it took me a long time to even feel like that's what I did. And and that distance, that outsiderness made me approach it from a slightly different position. It took a long time for me to where I started to think of myself as a writer in the sense that I could produce writing as one of the objects that I would produce as well as design. So So I kind of was not really a writer, not really a designer, and I wasn't sure sort of where to fall. And then at some point, I started to realize that I could write and design simultaneously, that both those things would happen rather than just like writing about design and then making design, but actually I would write the texts of the things that I was making, you know, and that that would become actually where my career would fall. And so now I find it's much more unified where I write and design simultaneously, and it's the same thing.
0: How is design an elaborate form of writing?
3: Well, if you think about the page as the base level of design, um, it's an organized complex of information somehow. And so if you think of, again, going back into a, a kind of earlier form of writing, you know, with illuminated manuscript or something like that, you know, you were conveying content through the words, but you're also conveying content through the topography and through the pictures that go through it. And, and that it's not just about creating an effect. It's also about creating a kind of uh, drama around the, the, the words themselves and the, the the what the words mean. And so, so I think that, it's about writing. It's about conveying information on the page. But it's doing it through not only the words themselves but through the typography and through the the design elements and through the treatment and the materials and all those things all become part of the the speaking of the text in that way.
0: Do you feel that your study of poetry has influenced your work as a designer?
3: Absolutely. I think that, you know, the um, when I said, you know, kind of coming to design from the outside – it was also in this very specific way, because I was specifically looking at the time at imagist poetry from the early twentieth century, which for is for vi- example well a pollen or uh, you know very visual evocative evocative uh, that the the topography and the placement of the topography was a really important part of that, and so already. That leads to design and to typography, and that's how I ended up going to design school because I was so interested in in the visual um, affect of the poetry as well, uh, the apparition of those faces in a crowd, petals on a wet black bow, which is like one one image, and, and to create that that's a very graphic way of thinking about the world and thinking about the way you um, you make an image, and that image is evocative in certain ways, and so so for me the the connection to graphic design was totally clear. It made totally sense, like, why I went to RISD, like, from, you know, studying English. But I think that when you're with a whole bunch of people who, you know, went to art school, studied design, like, it's been their whole thing, you always feel a little bit like you don't know the code or the rules oh, of the language, you know? and, Oh, absolutely. I'm right there right, with you. You know, and I think that that aspect of, you know, never feeling quite like you're part of the club yet um, – while it's disorienting, I think actually was really good for me because it allowed me to try to figure out my own way in the world and my own way that I wanted to practice. And it didn't come out of basically necessarily my education even, because I don't feel like when I was in grad school, I really learned to design so much. I learned to kind of, you know, think about design, but, but I had to, you know, it took me a long time to really just love making things and the way they looked and the way they worked that way. But then at some point, like I said, I kind of came to this point where those two things came together, and and then it seemed very natural to me as a way to work.
0: Do you think that work has to be more dramatic now in order to capture people's attention or their imagination?
3: No, in the sense that maybe sometimes it has to be less dramatic because there's so much drama going on all the time. But um, I, I do think that there's an aspect where design is increasingly performative in the sense that – it has to to take a text and to, to to perform the text in that way, and and so and what I mean, text, not the letters themselves, but actually what the content is. So, so it's a, a kind of performance of the content, and so in th- that way, it is about the construction of a reality, in the sense that you know, there is somewhere off there in the Platonic distance, some kind of content. But we live in the world of performance all the time, of all the things, the way that it's brought to you and the way that you're absorbing it. And so it does seem to be that's the way that the world is constructed through all these series of overlapping performances.
0: If we're looking at performance as the outcome of the interaction with design, Mm -hmm. do you feel like that is a manipulative stance? Do you think that we're pushing people to try to understand a specific message in a specific way?
3: Yes, but I don't necessarily see manipulation as pejorative in the sense that, you know, one of the classical schools of thought is rhetoric. And, and rhetoric is about, you know, how do you convince people or, or shape their opinion through the way that you construct your language? And so it seems like that's a really essential aspect of communication at all. And, and so. Is trying to convince someone or trying to go and perform something in a certain way so that that they understand what you think they should understand manipulative? Or is that just basic communication that that's what you're doing all the time?
0: I mean, I think this is the inherent tension in a lot of design. Mm -hmm. I feel that there are really two ways of expressing messages. One is – in an inspiring way and one is in a manipulative way. Yeah. Um, and which do you choose and which, or how do you or, determine or, which is which? Or
3: or is it binary where you could just you know, drop from one to the other or is there kind of very blurry ground in between when right. inspiration becomes manipulation? And, you know, and, and I think that, yeah, we've all know all the the classical examples of manipulation and – You know, I think more often than not, it's actually in somewhere in between those two things, you know, and and sometimes is manipulation right or powerful or, uh, you know, something that is a, a way to work in the world. So I don't think it's a really simple equation to work out.
0: But it's a fun one to talk about. That's for sure. Um, I want to read a rather long passage from Multiple Signatures. Okay, bring it on. You, You have a chapter in Multiple Signatures called Save Yourself, and it was a piece that you wrote in 2000. And this is a topic that's pretty close to my heart. So I'm going to read this, and I'd hope we can have a little bit of a discussion about the aftermath and maybe where you are now, given it's 13 years later. Sanctimony hit an all-time high with the re-release of the First Things First Manifesto in 1999. The public promise to stop being bad and start being good was quickly endorsed by all manner of advocates, many with questionable social credentials. Emigre published both the manifesto and a plaintive call for saving advertising. Were so many really convinced of their own diabolical leanings? It is remarkable that design and advertising workers are so conflicted about the value of their work, so intent on the radical reformation of the professions they practice. Whatever the root cause, the worrisome aspect is that we don't seem to be developing any useful theory to lead us through this maze. You can go on to declare there's a bubble labeled capitalism, A bubble labeled consumers, a bubble labeled advertising, and clean, straight arrows to connect them in orderly systems. There is no free will on this planet, no critical perception, no ambiguity. Consumers, especially angelic children, sit transfixed in front of televisions taking orders from the great advertising gods. My problem with all this piety peddling, and this includes treaties like First Things First, is that this hand-wringing just won't produce results. Let's try an experiment. In every instance of these arguments, substitute the word speech For advertising. No one goes around claiming that everyone who speaks should only speak about good things, and no one blames language itself for the existence of hate speech, slurs, obscenity, or insults. Simple plans to make everyone start acting nice will never work. Imagine if all writers took a pledge to be meaningful or thoughtful or kind. Can you imagine a world where people only said nice things? So, Michael, I can only imagine the brouhaha that ensued after this was published. How did the design community and the brand community and the business community react to this? You're calling piety peddling.
3: Well, that... that it was thirteen years ago, and actually, that was originally in multiple signatures, and I, I took it out right before the final publication. And I don't Ooh. think it was in there; I'm not sure. But, um, <laughs> um, but I think that the uh, you know there's an aspect of design which is self hatred, <laughs> you know, and and I think that's where a lot of these attempts to purify design come from. And to me, it's it's too simplistic because, obviously, we operate in, in a very complex economic situ- situation, and. You know, Tony Negri famously said, "There's no outside anymore. Like no one's outside that system. That system incorporates everything, and there's not like a system where some people are inside and some people are outside. Everybody is implicated in that system."
0: You don't think that there are people that really can go off the grid, so to speak?
3: Well, I mean, yeah, you know, Ted Kaczynski or something. But, you know, I think that the, you know, um, you know, outside of that really extreme <laughs> version, of, of right? Unabombers, right? Unabombers, We're yeah, all right, on the yeah, grid. Right, exactly. You know, the hoodie wearing, uh, <laughs> sunglassed people in the world. But I, I think that the the system very neatly incorporates its opposition now also. You know, you can have the system and the opposition to the system is also part of the system as well. And that's why it's very difficult to see kind of radicalism in, within the the system at this point. And so the idea that there's the, kind of the insiders who are doing this bad things and there's outsiders who are doing good things, I think is, is you can't break it down that way and that simply. And so you have to say yes advertising is sometimes bad and sometimes good and it does stupid things and it does really smart things and it it can be a force of change and it can be a force of just idiocy you know and and like everything it can have those qualities and so i guess you can you can try to push people to do more with it or do something better with it but you can't cleanse it because it's part of the system and it's an inherent part of the system and our system is based on on advertising and on the development of capitalist system, which is based on on a kind of value, excess value. And so unless we're going to really overthrow the economic system, which I think is so far proving to be resistant to being overthrown, everything else within that is a, a, an attempt to assuage our own fears, I think. And so my reaction then – and it was a reaction to a very specific thing, an article in Emigre called Saving Advertising – was just that, you know, this call to, for all, all of us to be nice or to be better was, you know, nothing was going to happen from it. And, not the, you know, we could participate in it. We could sign these petitions, but it wasn't going to change anything. It wasn't going to be different somehow. And so it seemed like there had to be a different approach if we were going to go and rethink that.
0: So do you think that the condition of advertising reflects the condition of our souls as a, as a species?
3: no because i think that the system of global capital that we're all part of is not necessarily biological you know i mean it's a man made thing so it's not i don't think it has anything to do with our souls or our species i think it's basically it's a it's a very powerful condition which grown up over you know many centuries and it's a a form of social organization so i think it probably affects our souls and i think that we all live with the compromises of our system every day you know and so, you know, design and advertising and everything is is very much part of the, the mass communication system and its an economy that we all participate in and we all are paid by it. And uh, it's very difficult to extract yourself from it and still operate in a way which is you could even recognize as design anymore because design in itself is an economic practice.
0: It seems that you have a somewhat disparaging opinion of the word branding and in – the chapter "Brand as Voice." You talk about how the shift from corporate identity to branding represents one of the most significant transformations in graphic design in the past two decades. How so?
3: First of all, I, I don't have a disparaging opinion about branding. I, I practice it, you know. So, I mean, <laughs> it, it, you know, I mean, it's something that I make a living on. So, um, the, what I was saying there—that shift from corporate identity to branding. Um, is a significant rethinking about what the designer did in relationship to um, identity, and I think that there was a big portion of sixties based formal design practice you know that got picked up by big corporations, which was about the unification of graphic elements basically you know and that that was the classic corporate identity manual. And you know, Chemayev and Geismar made a fortune making thousands of them, and they all followed the same premise: which is, you create a logo, you created a typeface, you created a grid system, you made a notebook three ring binder with lots of pages in it. No one ever looked at it again, but it was basically like that was going to go and unify everything that ever was produced by it.
0: As if that was even remotely possible. Exactly, and
3: <laughs> and not, not only that, but but I think when what the shift of branding realizes that unification isn't necessarily a good message to have for our corporation, like that we're like this monolithic thing that speaks always the same way and our voice is always the same way. And and the reason why that's coupled with my interview with Paul Element about voice is that voice is... Performative—it it's basically takes thoughts and performs them and, and gives them shape to
0: them. Ah, the performance word again. Yes,
3: and, and performance anxiety always. So, um, <laughs> you know, I, I think that this aspect of voice being a, a way of thinking about a corporation or a company or a magazine, and the re- reason branding has become so ubiquitous as a term—it's part of political campaigns, it's part of nations, it's part of you know cities. It's everybody's talking about their brand. Celebrity chefs, exactly. Yeah, because what it means is that to understand what our the personality is and then to figure out the way that personality should speak and realizing that it shouldn't always speak the same way. It shouldn't always speak like a corporation. Sometimes it should be, speak in a casual way. Sometimes it should speak in an emphatic way. Sometimes it should do different things. And that, that if you understand the brand, then you have many more possibilities for performance of that brand because the brand isn't a logo and uh, a grid system. The brand is this, you know, Nike coined the idea that the brand is the DNA of the company. It's like it's like literally in its molecules. And, and do you believe that? I do believe it in the sense that I think that what Nike and some of those companies that, that really went out and, and expanded that notion in a big way did was show that they didn't need to be particularly uniform in the way they did things to still have a very strong presence in the world and to present themselves in a certain way and that they could actually speak in lots of different ways and and to very specific audiences. And what Nike's done is say, we can speak to South American soccer players one way, and we can speak to the Northlands of uh, Britain in a different way, and those still will be kind of qualities that will be like Nike, but we will adapt ourselves and adjust ourselves to who we're speaking to. And that's different than uniformity. That's actually the opposite of uniformity. That's basically saying we're contextual, and we're thinking about who we are and how we speak and we're adjusting the way we speak depending on who we're speaking to. And so that seems like that's not about the unification of graphic elements, which, you know, was the the bread and butter of every big design firm for years. It's something about identifying these really essential core values and then figuring out how those values could be expressed in voice, in graphic design, in advertising, in sponsorship and in anything you do. And so that would be an organizing principle for for any kind of organization that would be this brand idea. And that's why it's been so effective because what branding really is is understanding yourself. Branding is almost an entirely internal operation, I think. You know? It's understanding yourself and what you're about and then trying to go and be true to that self. You know?
0: See, I actually have a bit of a different opinion about that. I mean, I do think that it is very much an internal experience and an almost entirely internal experience. I think that what... Branding helps people do is create a persona that they want to project to mm. the outside world mm-hmm. and it what they would like other people external of them to believe about them internally. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that we run into problems when we assume that that one thing that we're using or those collection of things that we're using to perform mm-hmm. a sort of version of ourselves um, is is complete with those things and and – fundamentally fulfilling that role. And I don't know that that's possible because we live on this sort of hedonistic treadmill of Mm. wanting more, 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 more to be able to feel better, 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 better. And it's just sort of this elusive carrot that we work towards. So I, I think while it's an internal experience we use it to manipulate mm. others' experience of us.
3: Yeah, I, I didn't mean to imply that it wasn't a fiction because I think it's an entirely constructed thing. It, it's, not yeah. like, it's not like, you know, the car company really is caring, you know what I mean? Be
0: all you can be. Right, yeah, yeah, exactly.
3: You know, so, or, or just do it or whatever. Those, those, <laughs> those are clearly constructed ideas. But where they become more than just constructed ideas is that when they become fully formed and fully understood, they direct the development after them, right? So once you've established that that's what you are, then that determines what kinds of things you do. Like, we'll we'll sponsor this event and not that event because right. this is on a brand and this is not on brand, right? So, so those fictions start to become directive in the sense of directing the, how the organization develops. And you make decisions based on your brand. So you either you have to change your brand or you have to change what you do. And so people are reluctant to change their brand because that makes them seem, you know, mealy. And so every choice is like, is this typeface on our brand or not you know does this match with what who we're supposed to be and 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 so that way of thinking about this is who we are and are we speaking the right way organizes every kind of business conversation right now and i, I always cite this one thing which is that of the around 214 billion dollar capital uh, market capitalization of coca-cola uh, over half of that is its brand you know and so that's more than all of its architecture more bottling plants people uniforms everything is the valuation of its color, its logo, the way it speaks you know that that has a market value of about one hundred and fifteen billion dollars you know so I mean there's substance to it it 's a story it 's a fiction, but there's substance to it you know
0: in one of your most famous essays, which is also in multiple signatures titled "Fuck Content." You talk about how designers and brand consultants trade in storytelling, Mm. um, and you declare that the elements we must master are not the content narratives but the devices of the storytelling – typography, line, form, color, contrast, scale, weight. And we speak through our assignment literally between the lines. And I'm wondering, do you feel that the whole notion of storytelling is is now becoming a cliché? If I hear one more brand consultant talk about telling a story or mm. mastering the art of storytelling, I think my eyes are going to fall out of my head.
3: Well, I think that the my point in content was that you don't have to necessarily create the story to be involved in the telling of the story, and that that as designers we have a very specific language that we speak in, and that that, that has its own rules and its own history and its own set of conditions, which becomes you know the kind of whole institution of graphic design. And it, design isn't just about the effect of you know of translating content; it's about creating a whole mood or a whole feeling or a whole um, atmosphere around something. And that that itself is something which is extremely valuable and interesting to, to, uh, to understand and to study and to, to practice. And that when I look through then the history of graphic design and all the things that basically, you know, we were seeing as, as important things in design, they had very little to do with the content. They had very much to do with the development of form language and the way that that form language told us something about the moment in time. And I cite, for instance, Piet Zwart's um, catalog for a cable company. You know Who cares? It's cable. Like it shows different weights of cable or something like that. But it was like a new way to think about the organization of the page and a new form making. And it suggested that the world was changing and all these things because of the typography and because of the shapes that he used. And so it had nothing to do with what the function of the thing itself was or the content that was being projected. But it told you all the stuff about what it was like in you know the 30s in in Holland because of the form and so, so it seemed the, the, the plea in that article is really to say that form has a language to itself, it has a meaning to itself, it has a history, it has a uh, a depth to it. And that's something which we can actually think about and work with and, and that that's, that's, the, that's the material that we work with as graphic designers.
0: You talk about a number of different great tricks in multiple signatures, and you state that the great trick of graphic design is to appear to be on the surface while actually occupying the core
3: I think Mark Wigley said that, but I like that quote a lot, yeah, right, yeah. and I think that um that 's exactly it, which is that it seemed to be something which is superficial and on the surface well actually it's it 's organizing what 's going on behind it and um, which is a little goes back to our branding comment, you know which you know I think that when you you know, you set the tone for something. Then that directs actually what happens. And so, if if you're creating something which is directing what happens, it becomes a pretty profound activity. But I also, I don't want to go and ever somehow belittle the idea of just creating effect. You know, that just just creating an environment or feeling about something.
0: Well, I, that, that just having the word "just" in there right. makes it pejorative. Right, Otherwise, yeah, yeah, right, it yeah, seems yeah, yeah, like yeah, a yeah. fairly noble activity.
3: Yeah. Well, I, I, I often cite this um, conversation I was having with Muta Prada one time, and I asked her. Um, you know, did she have an idea for something? And she said, Michael, what's an idea in fashion? An idea in fashion is a little 20s, a little 60s, a little Russian woman on a horse. But in a way, that's fashion, right? It's, it's really about creating a mood around something. It's not about being really specifically direct or, or conveying content. It's about c- conveying mood and how powerful conveying mood is. that way. You
0: know? how, what is the biggest thing you've learned from Mrs. Prada, as she's referred to now, <laughs> and I think the recent issue of Vogue?
3: <laughs> Well, you know, I I have enormous respect for her because she has this remarkable eye and a remarkable ability to look at something and know whether it's right or not. And, you know, I often present three or four, ten different things to her, and she'll often make this weird mashup of two of them or something like that, and it'll become strange and interesting because she did that. And at first I, I bristled against that because I felt like she was kind of undermining my authorial position.
0: like Frankensteining, as, yeah, yeah. as we call it. Yeah, but but but, <laughs>
3: but but what I learned to trust her was to say, you know, like, go with it and try it. And um, and uh, oftentimes you, it brings you someplace that you weren't before, you know, that it breaks you out of your preconceived ideas about it and, you know, she has that ability to kind of like put two completely incongruous things together, and then and make something crazy and weird about it. That's the way she does her own work too, I think. You know,
0: how did you first meet?
3: We met through Rem Coolhouse working on the store in, in New York, and and those two people have had, you know had a big effect on my practice and the way I think about the world. And, and you know, when I think about Coolhouse, I would say that the thing that I learned from him was this trick that he taught me, which was that when the client asks for something, do it. But do it in the most extreme version, so it's so far beyond what they thought they you know wanted that, that it becomes something crazily new. And so, you know, if the client says I, I want my office in the corner of the building, make the corner you know thirty meters higher and farther out than you ever thought you could do it on a cantilevered arm or something like that. You know, so like it suddenly becomes this totally weird new thing. You've done exactly what they've asked you to do, but you've done it in this way, which is is taken it somewhere else. And and I think that that's a really interesting trick when you're when you're designing, and again, bristling with someone trying to tell you what to do, that to be open to to that desire, but then to change that and to, to kind of turn it into something new or something special, I think is a kind of interesting way to approach that interaction between the client and the designer. You, know.
0: you describe multiple signatures as a book that is a manifestation of a multiple personality disorder. What do you mean?
3: Design is a, a kind of Multiple personality disorder. There's a lot of voices involved in the project. Like unless you're, you know, working in this very boutique way of making, or design things and presenting them in the world, you're involved in this really complex negotiation at all times
0: with big personalities, with
3: big personalities, and with all different kinds of abilities. And and so, you know, oftentimes the, the graphic designer is the person in the middle of that, trying to go and you know bring it all together and and to to, to give a seamlessness to it. And so. Um, you know, the the design object, I think, is always the product of this uh, inc- incredibly complex negotiation that goes on between a client and the designer, between the writers and between the people involved, thinking about the audience. And so it's never like a pure object. It's an object which is exists in this tension between all these different forces. And so that's where, you know, the I, I think the design – it's very difficult to ever reduce a design object into a, like a single thing that one person made. Because it's there's so many different influences in the way that it's made. And so so I think multiple signatures is every design object is a multiple signature in a way.
0: Well, speaking of authorship, you have a, a chapter in the book that's really quite interesting in terms of talking about provenance. And you state that the state of graphic design history is dire because the subjects themselves have a vested interest in perpetuating a closed narrative about their own ideas and that designers want to build and maintain their own self-authored, self-serving myths. And design journalists are often unwilling to question the simple stories their subjects feed them.
3: Mm.
0: So what does that mean for the discipline of design criticism.
3: Well, I mean, I, I think that the problem is that there's a kind of shorthand that goes around in, in any time something gets made, right? So, you know, it's a building designed by Rem Koolhaas. Of course, it's like designed by hundreds of people who are involved in that. And that's a, you know, it's, it's a simple way. And it also, also, you really can't get into the complexity oftentimes because it's like you don't need to go into the complexity of it. And part of when we started our studio, naming it two by four, not naming it our names or, you know, my name or something like that was an attempt to blur that a bit, you know, that it was it came out of this collective activity, not out of an individual. You know, we weren't tying a name to this as, um, product. Of course, in branding terms, that's not always the best way to do it. Like, it, you know, sometimes it's better to go and just, like, build a personality around this thing, and then it's really easy because by building the personality, you know, Martha Stewart, the person is the brand, and then, you know, you can go and really easily convey that in lots of different ways. But I think that the myth of the sole designer who does everything and makes everything himself and, and herself, I think, is is tied up in that idea of attaching your name to it. In that Provenance article, I start out with the fact that we have a piece in MoMA, and it's attributed to, to these three people. And, and in a way, none of us made it. We were there, and we directed that it be made. But we were, again, negotiating between all these different forces of why it came to be the way that it was.
0: You have a remarkable paragraph about that. I'll read it. Um, so you write... Who is the originator of the work that hangs on the wall of MoMA, the one who thought up the concept, developed the idea, gave it form, or executed the final iteration? Can any one of us own the thing? The truth lies somewhere between the various extremes, institutional authorship on one side, the result of a collaborative, often random, set of efforts where the author's name is a function that unifies the work, and the heroic individual on the other. One person made the physical thing. A large, complex design system is the culmination of many individual flashes of brilliance that cohere into something more or less unified and complete. An insightful, investigative design journalism could tease out this contradiction and build a theory of graphic design based on the tension between the various, often contradictory, modes of making." Poetry. Well, <laughs> that's poetry, Michael Rock.
3: Oh, lovely. Um, but I think that the, that's exactly the thing, which is that we're in a way caught in this 19th century idea of the artist You know, and, and you know, a, attributing a work to an artist and, and then a kind of autobiographical way of thinking about it, like this is, he was thinking about this when he made that or something. And I think that that doesn't explain how complex design is as an activity and as a very kind of integral activity in the world right now.
0: Well, I think that the question of who contributed what and who made something is also highly subjective Mm -hmm. when you think about who they were influenced by Mm -hmm. and how they were influenced by those things that came before them. And I think it makes for a very slippery slope.
3: Mm. Well, I I think that the, you know, we live in a culture which is about celebrity and about, you know, that celebrities do certain things and you know that infects everything, I think. And so we the tendency is always wanting to see things in the frame of the activities of a single person, you know. So um and and you know, who they were out to with last night in Miami. You know, so.
0: <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> in in the chapter titled talking over, you state that clearly the definition of the designer is undergoing a radical transformation. Editors are becoming curators and designers are editors and writers and curators. I'm sensing that you don't like the word curator.
3: <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, it's used a lot for all different things. And in fact, you know, one of the things Kanye says is like, if... If I wanted to be called anything, I think I'd want to be called a curator, you know. Curator way. of culture? Yeah, no, and of people and of, yeah. you know, events and things like that, you know, of being a person whose taste is is valued and, and his selections are, are interesting. I think that – but, Debbie, I think, you know, what you're doing right now is a perfect example of what I'm saying. It's like your designer – but you're a broadcaster and you're making history and you're doing these things. And so it's, you know, that... Flattery will get you everywhere. No, no, but I mean, we're sitting here not designing. We're having a conversation and and that conversation is being recorded. And so that's like you know, I think that there's all these different ways to practice design and to practice um, what we do. And and that's... I'd like re- to think so. Yeah, and that's really different than, I think, even what we teach oftentimes. You know, it, it's hard to teach that because, like, what do you teach when you can do anything? You know, and so I, so I think that there's this possibility right now of all of these different ways of um, operating in the world. And not all of those have to do with, you know, pushing stuff around on the computer screen that has to do with like lots of different forms. So
0: So speaking of teaching, um, I'd like to share a little bit of um, a class description and an assignment that uh, you had for your second year design core studio class. And um, it's called Much Ado About Nothing. And you're You write, your intention with this project is actually pretty simple, even brutal. If we have been saying the thesis is not about content, but about method, what happens when we intellectually, petulantly, aggressively remove content altogether by saying design something about nothing? How do you design something about nothing? And is this reflective of the way that you teach or is this an anomaly?
3: Uh, no I don't think it's anomalous. i think it's 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 pretty much in the center of what i what I'm thinking about in teaching and and that project specifically it comes right after fuck content in the book and I think that for specifically that reason which is that obviously as soon as you design something it becomes about something so it's impossible to design a project about nothing but the the kind of nothing you try to define or the the way you try to define nothing is the story then because you know it's not supposed to convey content and so What's interesting about that project when you give it to eighteen students is that you get eighteen different versions of nothing, and, and any common denominators? No, no, completely not. And and so what it reveals is it reveals the maker because the content's not being revealed, and it reveals the, what what the proclivity of the maker is and what they're bringing to the project and what they think about it, and and the, those become the the stories of it somehow. And so I've always I've done that project a couple different times, and I'm always amazed how diverse nothing is, you know. <laughs>
0: That's amazing. Yeah. I'd love to see some yeah. of the work. Um, speaking of work, in a chapter called Just a Few Small Things, you articulate the trajectory of a project. Maybe it's fictional, maybe not. But it's about this idea of turning something that would ordinarily be less attractive – Sort of lumpy geeky women into um, a- a- attracting them to a brand that you call IntelSheet yeah. And it's a remarkable journey between client and consultancy, um, the client or or what Paula Sher would call the arc of a relationship mm-hmm. um, and, and the client coming to you with quite a lot of enthusiasm about your agency and what you believe and why they've come to you for very specific reasons. And then it's this dialogue back and forth through email mm-hmm. about the demise of the relationship. Mm-hmm. Um, did this really happen?
3: It's happened a million times in different forms. Not exactly that one. Um, that's a fiction. But I think that... Oh, darn. It, it's uh, laugh out loud right, funny. Yeah.
0: I mean, it's hysterically <laughs> accurate.
3: Yeah. I mean, and, and, and I think that the, you know, we've all, as designers, lived that, right? And, and I think that there was... I wrote that with my sister, and there's a couple of things that we were trying to go for in that, which is that, you know, oftentimes, if you're, you're thought of as, like, a smart designer or something like that, that people come to you with these projects, like, we really want this to be really smart, you know? But that's just, like, this kind of weird, like, that we want it to be orange or something, you know? Right. It's like... <laughs> (laughs) You know, there's nothing anymore about it, or
0: like nothing, right? Exactly. And
3: and so, and then, and then you realize really quickly that they have no idea what they're talking about, or you know, it's going off in this crazy way. And you know, you're trying to respond to it, and you're trying to go and do it in the way that you want to do it, and you realize that it's it's gone off the rails at some point. And you know, there's the famous adage that you start losing your client the day you sign your contract with them, and I think that that's really true because you know they invest so much fantasy in who you are and what you're going to bring to it, and with their preconceived ideas of who you are. And sometimes it's based in very little, like someone told them that you were smart or something like that, you know. And then... Um, or they know you do work for Prada. or exactly, yeah. And <laughs> they didn't really investigate it more than that, so it just seemed like... A, you know, and then, you know, you really quickly start to feel like, this is not going to work or it's not, not going anywhere somewhere. And that's what we tried to depict that moment, you know. And, and, you know, the point at the end of that was that how somehow it always gets turned around. It's like, yeah, you really couldn't do what we asked you. You know, it was like... It was your fault in the end, you know, and, and that's such a, a familiar trajectory for us. You know, like they're so invested in the idea of who you're going to be and then so disappointed when you're not that. And then, you know, this is kind of funny dynamic that happens. And. You
0: should stage it as a two-person play. It's it's that funny. Mm. Um, so my last question is, is the designer a creator or an interpreter?
3: Mm. Yeah, I guess both. Do you prefer one or the other? I, I prefer the, the actually the, the amalgamation of the two things. And um, to say you're just an interpreter means that you bring nothing to it. Like you're just you're, – you're like the simultaneous translator at the UN. You're basically just – it's coming in one – your ear and it's going out your mouth. And it's like it's never that. You know? And I think that I've heard design described somehow – sometimes as you know adding content to content. And I think that's a kind of interesting thing, which is that you add an overlay of something which shapes it. And that's both – an interpretation and also an act of creation, too. And that's what I love about design. I mean, I, I really, after, you know, practicing for 20 years, I still really love the profession. I still really love the act of doing it. And because it's like endlessly entertaining, you know, there's there's always things that you can do. There's always new ways to get at it. There's a, And you're always playing a game with yourself, too. It's like, I'm trying to keep this interesting for myself, and I'm trying to do something that like amuses me. It seems like it's this field where just like you can always come up with a new way to do it and a new way to think about it. And I always like kind of games anyways, and it has rules. And then all these different ways that you can break the rules all the time. And so I I think being both a creator and an interpreter is the essence of being a designer, and that's why I love it.
0: Michael Rock, thank you for being on Design Matters. Thanks, Dave. You can find out more about Michael Rock and see images of his remarkable book, Multiple Signatures, at 2x4.org. i would like to thank you for listening. And remember, we can talk about making a difference, we can make a difference, or we can do both. I'm Debbie Melman, and I look forward to talking with you again soon.
2: This episode is supported in part by Lynda.com, an online learning company with more than 77,000 video tutorials. With Lyndon.com, you can learn software, creative, and business skills to achieve your personal and professional goals. Try it free for seven days by visiting lynda.com slash That's lynda.com spelled with a Y, not an I, lynda.com slash Support is also provided by Shutterstock, home of over 25 million stock photos, vectors, illustrations, and video clips. If you are looking for images for your website, blog, app, or print project, Shutterstock makes it easy. Visit Shutterstock.com to get 30% off any package with offer code DESIGN30. That's DESIGN30 for 30% off at Shutterstock.com. Design Matters with Debbie Millman is recorded at the Masters in Branding Studio at the School of Visual Arts in New York City. It is produced by Curtis Fox Productions with technical assistance by Rainey Ortika. The show is published exclusively by designobserver.com. You can subscribe to this free podcast in the iTunes store.